do. That's not a phrase you say very often, I'm guessing. Uh, Turn with me to um, Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles, you should find it on page 980. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, We will uh, read verses 5 through 11. It's our practice here at Grace Covenant uh, to stand whenever we read God's Word. So if you're able, let me ask that you do that now. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in and among us now to use Your Word, operate on us, perform surgery on us, that we might be made more and more like Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. You and I live in a world uh, that demands its rights and entitlements. We're quick to claim, you owe me. We're quick to claim, I'm entitled to this, or I have a right to that. We're quick to claim those things. We think that everyone around us owes us that Everyone around us should bow to our gifts, our abilities, our knowledge, our understanding, whatever the case may be. We seek our own pleasure, our own honor, our own exaltation in the eyes of people around us. Truth is, I think you should hold me in as high esteem as I hold me. We want our rights and entitlements. We, we want to claim them. In fact, I can, I can actually almost prove it to you. Uh, you'll notice the sermon title is The Humiliation of Christ. I can prove to you that you like your rights and entitlements. You don't like the word humiliation. You think that word is a problem. And there are really two reasons for that. One, because in our use of that word, it's passive and negative. Other people always humiliate you. You never use that word in a self-deprecating way. You always mean, they humiliated me. Meaning, they made me look bad in the eyes of the people around me. And to us, that's negative. How dare the people around me 
think little or low of me. We, we're a, a rights and entitlement culture. But the question is, is that the way the culture should be inside the church? Is that the way we should live here at Grace Covenant? Is that the way, is that the model for us within the context of the body of Christ? This passage actually lays out for us the answer to that question. A counterintuitive and countercultural manner in which you and I as believers should live. Now, it's entirely possible... It is probably the case, though we can't technically say for certain, it is probably the case that Paul didn't write these words. That Paul didn't write verses 6 through 11. He probably wrote verse 5. That, okay, yes, he wrote them in his letter to Philippians, but he didn't create them. He didn't pin those words. He, he probably stole them. I'm, I'm feeling actually kind of in good company right now. I, I think in music. If, if you're going to get a quote from me, it's probably a line from a song. Well, pro- Paul has probably stolen a verse from a, an early first century hymn. It's probably the case that, that what we read in verses 6 through 11 was something that the church was singing in worship together already in the mid 60s or so AD. Paul just uses them. He uses the the verse of this hymn or the whole of this hymn within this context to make a point. Notice first the height from which Christ came. We read right off the bat in verse 6 that Jesus was God. Don't don't put words in my mouth. I didn't just say that Jesus was God and now He's not. I didn't say that. I'm simply saying what Paul said here in verse 6, that that as he is writing this letter, that before Jesus came to earth, before Jesus took on flesh, He was God. He didn't cease to be God, but He already was God. God. Notice we're told in verse 6, He was in the form of God. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, He was God. Before He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, which we just confessed a few minutes ago, He already was God. At the time of creation, John tells us, Jesus was speaking creation into existence. When Noah delivered his family from the flood in the ark, Jesus was. Jesus was already there and Jesus was God. When Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jesus was God. That's the point Paul's making that That Jesus was and always has been God. He's always had the form of God. Prior to His birth, prior to His life on earth, Jesus was God. Now, you and I read the word form and we struggle. 
Because we know the children's catechism, don't we? What is God? God is a spirit. And He doesn't have a body like men. Or maybe you know the shorter catechism. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Spirits don't have forms the way you and I think of a form. He doesn't have a body. Jesus didn't, didn't have a body. It's not like he, was, he looked like God because he had the body of God. He's always been in the form of God. He's always had the, the attributes of God. He is God and was God and always has been God. All the characteristics and attributes and power that, that you attribute to God, that they, were rightly, they rightly belonged to Jesus. The height from which Jesus came. But notice the depth to which Jesus came. Because in verse 6, not only, what, not only was God Jesus in the form of God, He also didn't count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul could mean he didn't, he didn't need to grasp it because it was already His. Or he probably means he didn't need to hold on to it. He didn't count it of such a right, of such a privilege, of such an entitlement that he would hang on to it to the exclusion of all else. <clears throat> Instead, he emptied himself, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself. He didn't count that equality with God such a thing to be held onto that he wouldn't empty himself, would be sort of the, the implication there. You've got to be careful. Because the logical next question that you and I want to ask is what did Jesus empty himself of? First of all, don't end a sentence in a preposition. So, I should have asked it differently. But, you can't say that He gave up being God. You can't say that <clears throat> He ceased, that He was God, and then when He came to earth, He stopped being God. You, you can't make that distinction. You can't say when you read that Jesus emptied Himself, that He... He gave up being God. You, you, got, you have to keep the God-man together in Christ. The ESV and the New American Standard, Standard both have this emptied himself. The, the NIV, the King James, <clears throat> don't actually translate the word there. They actually interpret it. And they both have something about Jesus making himself nothing or of no reputation Jesus emptied Himself. He made Himself nothing. He made Himself of, of no reputation. He didn't give up His power. He stopped storms. He raised men and women and boys and girls from the dead. He didn't give up His power. He didn't give up His deity. He didn't give up His... Knowledge, 
He didn't, as Wesley wrote, empty himself of all but love. That wouldn't be true. He's, he's still the God-man. His, the divine nature is still there in Christ. He didn't stop being God. We don't really need the rest of the Bible to tell us that, though. This passage answers for us what Paul means by Jesus emptying Himself. He gave up, verse 7, his rights, his entitlements. He was was willing to let go of his rights and entitlements as God in order to take on flesh because, because he loved us, because we needed him to. Because we needed a, a new Adam. We needed someone to, to take our place in the flesh, to serve us, to be obedient to the law, to suffer and die for us. You'll notice how He emptied Himself. Notice the, the depths to which Jesus came. He empties Himself not by stopping to be God, but by becoming something He didn't already have. Becoming something he wasn't already. He took on flesh. He became a man. He became a servant. Born in the likeness of men, verse 7 tells us. Being found in human form, verse 8. Even obedient to the law, even to the point of death. The Son of God became subject to a law that He wrote. He gives the law to His people and then takes on flesh centuries later and has to obey that law in our place. The Creator takes on the form of the creature. Put yourself in the shoes of Paul's audience. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. We read back at the beginning of chapter 1. He's he's writing to the citizens of Philippi are are Roman citizens. They're a Roman colony and have all the rights and privileges of a Roman as if they lived in Rome itself. They understand rights and entitlements. Jesus takes the form of a servant. In Rome, a servant was property, not a person. That's true in our own southern history. Slaves, servants were property. They weren't people. Notice how far Jesus stoops in this passage. The eternal Son of God, with all the rights and privileges of God Himself, has stooped to the form of the creature the creature a servant even subjecting himself to death itself don't miss by the way the 
significance of Christ in the upper room. When He takes off His outer garment and wraps that towel around His waist and performs the function of a servant. In the eyes of everyone, in the eyes of His disciples, and certainly in the eyes of these Philippians, that's too far. That's too far for Jesus to stoop. That's too much entitlement giving up to stoop to the level of a servant. But His humiliation didn't stop there. Not only was He willing to serve fallen, broken, sinful, rebellious creatures, He would even die for them. He would even go to the cross the lowest, most inhumane form of capital punishment wicked man could conceive of. Jesus endured embarrassing, painful, shameful. Jesus endured all of it. The the height from which Christ came, the depths to which Christ came. Don't miss that gap. Don't miss just how far Christ humiliated Himself, humbled Himself, how low He was willing to stoop for us. Now we know, Paul doesn't actually say this here because it's not the point of the passage. We would be remiss if we didn't make the point, though we know why Christ did all of that. He did all of that. He endured all of that because you and I as rebels, as having committed cosmic treason, violating the law of the triune God, you and I deserve death and hell forever. Christ did all of that, endured all of that for us and for our salvation to steal the phrase from the Nicene Creed. He was willing to endure all that you and I have to endure, suffer and die to pay the price to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. But that's not really the point of the passage. That's not really the aim of why Paul quotes this hymn here. The height from which Christ came, the depths to which Christ came, because notice right on the heels of that, in light of Christ's obedience, in light of having accomplished our salvation to the fullest, in light of having done all that Christ had to do so that you and I might be saved, notice the height to which Christ was raised. God exalted Him and set Him above all of creation, the name above every other name, the name to which every every part of creation will bow, every created being will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Even Even the angelic beings, even the heavenly beings bow 
to this exalted Christ. They too are created, they're creatures. Remember, Jesus is his earthly name. It's it's Joshua. It means God brings salvation, God saves. That's his earthly name. That's not really the name above every name. Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his is his is his office. It's his function. It's his responsibility. He's the Messiah, the, the Christ, the anointed one. That also is not really the name above every other name. Now notice verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This God-man is now ruler and master and authority over all of creation. And as Lord, He's been granted the title, the name, Lord, to which every other name is subject. This, by the way, may very well have been the first Christian creed. It may very well have been the case that that the New Testament church, that the, the churches in Rome and Corinth and Colossae and Ephesus and Philippi were reciting this as their first affirmation of faith. Believer in Jesus Christ, what do you believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's been granted the name above every name. We're subject, we and every other part of creation in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth are subject to the rule and reign and majesty of Jesus Christ. But you know, you and I as Presbyterians, we are frequently accused of loving our knowledge. We are frequently accused of taking great pride and arrogance in the things that we know and believe and have right, correct. And sort of in that sense, we look down on others because obviously if we're right, then they're all wrong. We're frequently accused of taking entirely too much pride and arrogance in knowing things correctly. That's not why Paul writes this passage. Paul writes this passage not so that you and I can have our Christology right, so that we can have our right understanding of the person and work of Christ, of who Jesus is, so that we can make sure we have everything right about His deity and His humanity, His humiliation and His exaltation. That's not why Paul writes this. I mean, those things are true, and we should know them, but that's not why Paul writes this passage. He doesn't write this passage so that you and I can know things and understand things. His his primary reason is not to teach us about Jesus. His primary motive for quoting this hymn right here in this part of this letter is ethical. He wants to change our behavior. He wants us to be different. He wants wants us to think 
differently, not about the facts that we know, but about each other. He's actually using this to drive us to love other people more. The saints in Philippi, you remember, there was dissension. There was, uh, there was a quarrel among them of some form or another. We're never actually told exactly what the real issue is. It was obviously bad enough that Paul would, in a letter that's going to be read publicly, he would actually name two women in particular. We'll get to that in chapter 4, I think it is. He entreats Yodia and Syntyche. He, he's, he's willing to actually publicly call out two particular people. It's, it was obviously some form of dissension and quarrel within the church. If anyone had a claim to rights and entitlement, Paul says, it was Jesus. If anyone had a right to say, no, 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 I'm worthy of your worship and praise, and I do not need to let go of that in order to stoop so low as to become a creature. To take on the flesh like, like you rebellious people. You've rebelled against me. Why would I stoop so low to die for you? If anyone had a right to, to grab onto rights and entitlements, it's Jesus. And Paul says, Jesus, despite having every right, every privilege, every entitlement, loved, fallen, broken, sinful creatures enough that he wouldn't grasp it. He would let it go for our good, for our salvation, to accomplish our Salvation. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for us to put fences around the commands of Scripture? I mean, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but do you know my neighbor? I mean, he lets his grass grow entirely too tall. I have to tell him over and over again, that's just horrible looking. Would you please mow your lawn? I mean, I know I'm supposed to we're supposed to be one in Christ. As I know all the one another passages, but you don't know these another's. You don't know these another's like I do. They're entirely too difficult to love and care for. Yes, I know this very passage right here in the first four verses. Yes, I know I'm supposed to look to the interests of others, but I don't like their interests. I know I'm supposed to consider others better than myself, but they're not. The fences we put up around God's commands. We're masters at creating legitimate sounding limits for biblical requirements. Paul says, look to Jesus. He so loved sinful rebels that he didn't, didn't grasp onto his rights and privileges, and entitlements in order to, to avoid becoming man. In order to avoid serving others. Christ didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. In order to avoid death, burial. 
Christ didn't grasp onto his rights and privileges to avoid any of those things. He endured the humiliation of taking on flesh and death on the cross precisely because our need was more important to him than his own rights and privileges and entitlements. I know what you're thinking. At least I hope you're thinking this because I, I want to make sure I have at least some company. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, that sure is easier said than done. And you're right. It is easier said than done. You may also be thinking to yourself, wait, 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 wait Jeff, hold on. You sound like you're coming really close to saying, do this and you'll be saved. We have... We have a hard time preaching imperatives of the Bible. We have a hard time reading passages that say, Thou shalt, you must do this. This is how you're supposed to behave. We want to run to the indicatives. We want to run to, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That's absolutely true. Oddly enough, right here in this section, Paul in the previous section gave you the indicative and then the imperative. Here he switches them around. In verse 5 he says, Have this mind among yourselves. Yes, it's easier said than done, but don't miss the power of this mind. Don't miss where you get, uh, where you get this mind from. Have this mind, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Because you and I, as believers, are united to Christ. He didn't just come to save you from hell, but He does do that. He didn't just come to show you how to live, but He does do that. In fact, He didn't just come to save you from your sin, to be your substitute, but He does do that. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, that is your greatest need. You won't care one whit about the people around you until Christ changes you. Run to that cross. Trust in Christ and in Him alone for your salvation. But Christ also came to reprogram us, to reconfigure our hearts and our minds. So that his mindset could become ours. Because we are united to Christ. Because we are in Christ Jesus, verse 5. We can have that mind. Not in your own strength, in your own power. You need the Spirit. You need Christ at work by his Holy Spirit, by his word. To conform us more and more into the image of Christ. But Christ has come, having redeemed us, having called us to Himself, He changes our loves. He changes our minds. He changes the way we think. He changes the things that we love and conforms us more and more into His image. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Is that your mindset? 
Are you seeking a claim on your own birthright or your own knowledge within the context of the church? Are you grasping onto rights and privileges that are yours because of some knowledge or understanding or ability or gift that you have? Would you rather hold on to your rights and privileges and entitlements and expect others to to bow to you rather than to let them go in order to love and serve others? Or are you willing to set aside your claims to power and authority and rights and privileges in order to serve your church family? May God grant this kind of unity to Grace Covenant Church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent a Redeemer in our place. That you sent your Son to take on flesh, to live a righteous, holy, sinless life that we cannot, would not, didn't want to. To do so in our place, to suffer and die the death that we are owed because of our sinfulness. But we thank You that He's conquered death itself. He's defeated death itself. He's defeated the grave and is worthy of our hope and trust. Father, we pray that You would draw unbelievers to Christ, that they would trust in Him and in Him alone for their salvation. That they would run to the foot of that cross, bathe in the blood of Christ, and be made clean. And Father, would You use Your Word at work in the hands of the Holy Spirit, operating on us, performing surgery on us, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. All to your honor and glory and praise we pray it. Amen.